Well, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73 this morning. Psalm 73. As you know, we are currently making our way through selected psalms, and many of these psalms are psalms that we sing out of our Psalter hymnal. And so we have the wonderful experience of not only hearing these psalms explained and applied to us, but also being able to sing in a doxological manner these, uh, these words of revelation back to our God. Please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, Psalm 73. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will, shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. 
Well, one of the unique contributions that the Psalms and the wisdom literature of Scripture provides us is that it provides us glimpses of individuals who are struggling with God's providence, struggling to understand God's ways in this world. Now, what is God's providence? Boys and girls, you uh, may remember that we confess God's providence in, in the Heidelberg Catechism. As the Catechism is going through the Apostles' Creed, we confess that God is our Father and thus He will provide whatever we stand in need of body and soul in this life. We also confess that God as our Father promises that whatever adversity He sends or permits to enter our life, He will turn for our good because He is able to do so, being our Almighty God and willing also as our faithful Father. We also confess that God's providence means that His almighty power is in control of all things, from economics to weather patterns to the health of our own bodies. And because of His almighty power, we can have confidence that nothing comes by chance, but everything proceeds from His fatherly hand. This is what we mean when we confess God's providence. Now, it's one thing to, you know, know what our catechism says on the issue of God's providence. It's one thing to understand this doctrine cognitively or theoretically. It's a whole other thing to be able to rest in this doctrine, to trust this doctrine when our life feels chaotic, when we don't know what next week holds, let alone tomorrow, when the mountains of stability that we look to for security in this life seem to be overwhelmed with the waters of chaos, as we saw in Psalm 46. When our circumstances seem to testify against these truths that we confess about our providential Heavenly Father. This is the crossroads of the Christian life when our circumstances seem to be in conflict with the promises of God's providence. Oftentimes in the Christian life, it can feel as if we are the, the spectator of a, a boxing match. And in the ring are our circumstances and God's providence. And we're wondering, where should we place our bet? Where should we place our wager? Can these truths about God's providence Hold the weight of my confidence and trust. Can I really anchor myself to these things, even though I can't see the validity and truthfulness of these things with my eyes? Meaning, 99% of the things that happen to us, we don't know the specific meaning and purpose of them. Oftentimes, they seem to be the very opposite of good when God promises that all things work for our good. So can we anchor ourselves to these truths when we can't see the validity of them with our eyes in our life? Well, this is where Asaph is at in Psalm 73. He's at this crossroads. He is struggling with this apparent conflict with his present circumstances and what he knows about God as our providential heavenly father. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all have been there before, and we may even be there this morning, struggling with that conflict between our circumstances and God's promises regarding 
his fatherly providence over our lives. So what I'd like us to do today is, is first consider Asaph's confession. We'll then look at Asaph's circumstances. And lastly, we'll see how this conflict and tension that Asaph is struggling with is resolved through sacrifice. So first, we'll consider Asaph's confession. If you look with me at verse 1, Asaph says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph knows who God is. Asaph knows God's past dealings with the people of Israel. He's not ignorant with regard to God's track record. He knows that God is the God who instituted this covenant of grace with our first parents, Adam and Eve, after they rebelled in the garden and clothed them with the skins of dead animals, promising that he would take away the guilt of their sin. Asaph knows that this God is the God who saved and preserved Noah and his family through divine judgment. Asaph knows that God is the God who is faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Asaph knows that God is the God who rescued and redeemed Israel out of Egypt, brought them safely through the Red Sea and through the wilderness, even though Israel kept grumbling and complaining and rebelling against God their provider. Asaph knows that God is his conquering warrior who cleansed that holy land, the land of Canaan, from the unholy Canaanites. Asaph knows that this God is a God who established a covenant with David, an everlasting covenant, ensuring that David's dynasty would be perpetual. Asaph's problem is not a lack of knowledge. Asaph does not need to go to Sunday school with the priests and learn about the doctrine of God. Asaph knows who God is. Truly God is good to Israel and those who are pure in heart. What then is, is Asaph's struggle? Well, Asaph is struggling with this apparent conflict. This conflict between what he, he, he hears with his ears and what he sees with his eyes. This conflict between God's track record and his circumstances. That's why in verse 2 he says, But as for me and my circumstances and my present experiences, I can't square the two. How can, how can God be who he is when my life seems to be what it is as well? He's struggling with this conflict between his circumstances and God's providence. And so what, what, is, what is Asaph's experience? What, what are his circumstances? Well, we see that Asaph continues in verse 3, and he, he speaks about his present circumstances. He, he says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph is looking out, and he he sees the wicked, and he sees that the wicked are prospering. If you remember back in Psalm 1, there's these two, at bottom, there's really two classes of people, the righteous and the wicked. Those who repent and believe in the sacrifice and righteousness of Christ and seek to live a godly life, and those who rebel against Christ, those who rebel against God's law. And thus Asaph, a righteous God-fearer, 
looks out and he sees the wicked prospering. And what is this prosperity that the wicked enjoy? Well, you'll see in verse 4 that Asaph says that they're fat and sleek. In the ancient world, to be fat was an ideal. It's because if you were fat, that meant that you didn't have to slave away in the fields from sunup to sundown. You had the luxury of sitting, the luxury of eating good food and well-aged wine. Oftentimes, in the ancient world, you were skinny out of necessity because you were working from the moment it was light till the time it was dark. So these wicked are prosperous. They're fat and sleek. They don't endure hardships like many other people endure. Their life is relatively easy, as we see in verse 5. And these prosperous individuals are indeed wicked. Uh, Asaph speaks to their wickedness in verses 6 through 12. We see that pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. We see that their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. They loftily threaten oppression and these wicked glory. They glory in their shame. They glory in their sin. And Asaph, as he is looking around himself and he sees the prosperity of the wicked, he grows envious as he contrasts uh, his own pasture that God has placed, in, placed him in and the pasture of the wicked, he, he sees that the pasture of the wicked seems a lot greener than his own pasture. And he starts wondering to himself, maybe, maybe I should hop the fence. Maybe I should adopt the lifestyle of the wicked because they seem to be a lot more blessed than I am. He grows envious. Now, as Asaph views the prosperity of the wicked, we see that this leads to a crisis of faith. In verse 2, again, we see Asaph saying, My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now, growing up in the Midwest, ice is not something you want to play around with. Not only does it make driving dangerous, but... Walking itself is a risky expedition. And when you're walking on an icy sidewalk and you begin to slip, what's, what's your first impulse? Well, you start flailing your arms, right, to keep your center of gravity and maintain upright. This is what Asaph is doing in a spiritual sense. He's flailing his arms as he feels his spiritual feet beginning to slip. That's the experience that Asaph is describing for us. If we look down at verse 13, uh, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Asaph is saying, my, my devotion, my religious devotion to Yahweh, the, the time, the energy that I put in to be ritually pure and clean for my God, has it all been in vain? While the wicked explicitly and overtly rebel against God and are prosperous? Has this all been for naught? Well, why? Why did Asaph's consideration of the prosperity of the wicked lead to a crisis of faith? Well, what's the connection 
uh, between these two, the, the wicked prospering and Asaph, a righteous God-fearer, having a crisis of faith. Well, I've mentioned last week that, and, and numerous times before that, that God has written into the fabric of this universe a moral order. And what this means is that there is a discernible, and not arbitrary, there's a discernible relationship between our actions and their consequences. Generally speaking, vice leads to misery and virtue leads to prosperity. Parents, at bottom, this is what you're trying to teach your children. There are consequences to our actions in this life, and generally speaking, vice leads to misery and virtue leads to prosperity. Historically speaking, this is what schools have sought to inculcate in their students. As image bearers of God, all mankind have this natural knowledge of God's moral order. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that Jews and Gentiles have this law written upon their hearts. This natural knowledge is not some secret knowledge that's only privy to Christians. Uh, this is knowledge that that unbelievers, atheists, have by virtue of being an image bearer of God. Furthermore, we see that God explicitly reissued this natural law principle when he established the Mosaic Covenant with the people of Israel. For instance, when you read passages of Scripture like Deuteronomy 28, you see that God told Israel that if they obeyed his law, they would be blessed in a temporal manner, in an earthly manner. And if they disobeyed, they would experience temporal curses. And so in this way, Israel, under the Mosaic Covenant, was a microcosm of all mankind's experience under the natural law. And Asaph knows this. He knows this not just because he is an image bearer with the law of God written upon his heart, but he also knows this because he's a member of the nation of Israel. He knows Deuteronomy 28. He knows the stipulations of that covenant. And so it's Asaph's knowledge of God's moral order that is leading to this crisis of faith. How can the wicked be prospering? Does morality even exist? Did God really create this universe in an orderly manner? And if so, how can the wicked be prospering. He's struggling with the notion that the fall has infused chaos into this natural moral order. Consequently then, Asaph is experiencing real tension and conflict uh, between his circumstances and what he knows about God in Israel's confession. Now lastly, we'll consider how, how Asaph receives resolution as he enters the sanctuary. So if you look with me at verses 16 and 17, we read, But when I thought how to understand this, this, this conflict, this tension, this philosophical conundrum, uh, Asaph says, It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Again, where does Asaph receive resolution to this tension and conflict? In the sanctuary. 
in the temple. And boys and girls, as Asaph would have entered into the courtyards of this temple, what do you think he would have witnessed with his eyes? He probably would have witnessed a pretty gruesome sight as he gazed upon the altar which stood right before the holy place. He probably saw blood splattered around the altar and the ground. He, he likely would have smelled the smell of charred animal flesh in his nostrils. He would have heard the sound of flies buzzing all around. It would have been a gruesome image. However, it's this image that brought resolution to Asaph's conflict and tension that he was experiencing. How so? What's so, so significant about these sacrifices that Asaph would have witnessed upon the altar? Well, the sacrifices in the altar would have reminded Asaph of the need of substitutionary atonement. As he gazed upon that altar, Asaph would have remembered that he is a sinner, and because he is a sinner, he deserves to be on that altar. He deserves his blood to be spilled. But yet, because of God's grace, those animals are dying his death. Asaph would have been reminded of the need of substitutionary atonement. As a consequence, Asaph would have been reminded that because of these sacrifices, God can dwell in the midst of his people. This then is what leads Asaph to this, 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 this immense reversal in verses 23 through 28. As Asaph speaks about the privilege it is to have God near him, to have God as his counsel, to have God with him no matter what, to have God as the strength of his heart and his portion forever, to have God as his refuge and his strength. Asaph realizes only because of sacrifice that God can be present for his good. Now it's very important for us to recognize that Asaph didn't get his questions answered as he entered the sanctuary. He didn't go into the sanctuary and receive a philosophical treatment on the problem of evil. Rather, he received an image, an image, a bloody image of sacrifice. And this is what brought resolution. Because Asaph realized in this moment that he has a place to go with his sin, with his guilt, and with his doubts. Asaph realizes that he has the promise that God, the divine being, the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth is with him. For his good. Again, if you look at verse 17, Asaph explicitly tells us what he learned in that temple. He says that he entered the sanctuary and he discerned their end. He realized, he, had a, he was given a zoomed out perspective on reality. At the beginning of the, of the psalm, he's a very zoomed in, microscopic view of reality. The wicked have, are enjoying earthly prosperity and he is languishing. But in the sanctuary, he's given a zoomed out perspective and he realizes that the wicked have no hope. The wicked have no lasting inheritance. The wicked have no true homeland. And he, no matter what his present circumstances are, has hope, has a sure and ready inheritance that's given to him by his God. 
And so we see this reversal in verse 18 where Asaph confesses, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Consider that reversal. In verse 2, Asaph says, my feet had almost slipped. My steps have almost stumbled. But now in verse 18, he realizes that, no, it's the wicked who have been placed on the ice rink. Now, where do we go when we feel like Asaph felt in the beginning of this psalm? Where do, we, where do we go when we feel this tension and conflict between our circumstances and God's promises that he is our providential heavenly father? Of course, we can't go to an earthly sanctuary or temple. Uh, we are not to gaze upon animal sacrifices as a means of assurance. Well, we go to church. It's one avenue in which we receive the same resolution. We go to a true church in which the gospel is preached and the sacraments are administered. And in such a church, uh, we are urged to find refuge in the cross of Christ. This same cross which is the fulfillment of those animal sacrifices that Asaph would have gazed upon in that old covenant tabernacle. The cross assures us that no matter what our circumstances seem to be preaching to us, and oftentimes our circumstances seem to, uh, to be testifying to us that God's promises are null and void, that God is displeased or apathetic towards us, the cross assures us that these things cannot be true. Why? Because if God sent his son to die for you, to bear the wrath, for your sins, then surely, surely these circumstances can't mean that God is displeased and apathetic towards you if he was willing to go to such great lengths to redeem your body and your soul. Now again, as we think about Asaph's experience in this sanctuary this was a very tangible experience for Asaph. He would have walked into those courtyards and he would have witnessed the, the splatterings of blood. He would have smelled the, the smell of charred animal flesh. He would have heard the noise of flies buzzing all around. It would have been a very physical, uh, uh, tangible experience for Asaph. And sometimes when we come to church, just being reminded of God's verbal, audible promises it doesn't quite do it for us. We do long for something tangible, something physical to resolve this resolution, this conflict that we oftentimes find ourselves in. We long to know whether these promises can hold the weight of our confidence and trust. We long to know whether these promises really are true for me, even when my circumstances seem to testify to the opposite reality. And in those moments, we look no further than the bread and the wine of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Beloved, can you taste bread? Can you taste wine? If so, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is present for your good. That God is your refuge and your strength, even though you will not be able to comprehend his secret will in this age. And so, yes, we 
we need to go to the new covenant sanctuary of the Lord, gather together with the people of God on the Lord's day and hear the word and participate in the sacraments and have our own conflict resolved as we are assured that God is present for our good. Now this psalm also additionally provides us some wise counsel on how we can come alongside other people who are in a similar place where Asaph is in this psalm. One of our temptations when we, when we come alongside other people who are walking through very difficult valleys of life is, uh, is to try to explain away their circumstances, to try to decipher that hidden meaning behind why uh, situation X, Y, or Z has entered their life. That's a temptation. This is really what Job's friends did to Job. Job's friends had a very black and white, rigid understanding of that moral order that I previously alluded to. They were searching for some causation that they could point to for why Job was suffering. And there was no causation behind Job's suffering. And so when we come uh, alongside other people, we should not try to pry into the secret will of God. We are to content ourselves with what has been revealed And what has been revealed? Well, the simple message of the cross of Christ has been revealed. And this is the true and lasting comfort that we all need to hear during times of trials and afflictions. That Christ suffered for us and has guaranteed our everlasting joy in the new creation. And so, congregation of Christ, we we do experience this same conflict that Asaph experiences, this conflict between our circumstances and God's providence. But the cross of Christ assures us that we can place our hearty trust in the God who's revealed to us in Scripture because Christ suffered and died for you and